0: Bonjour, 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 and uh, Christophe Mallet here on the SBS Cycling Podcast. Today we have one of the voice uh, of cycling around the world. It's Anna Walker with a H with Anna. How are you, Anna? <laughs> bonjour,
1: Christophe, ça va? Very good, very good. It's a turn in the weather here in the UK. It's been...
0: Come on, you, you, you had the, the, the best Indian summer of memory. You know, it's like...
1: Absolutely, absolutely. But now it's turning, it's grey, it's raining but yeah. i mean you know, okay i expect nothing less
0: <laughs> do you know what we say in france we said um we, that's a side note but we say uh, when it's not raining in england it's not good because it means it's going to rain <laughs> it's
1: not true. It's <laughs> only true when not if
0: yeah, absolutely so you are passionate about cycling you are one of the the many voices around the world of cycling but you're you're one of the uh, international uh cycling voice you work a lot with Anthony Macrosson. Uh, we'll talk about this passion uh, of yours as well, and how is the lifestyle, and what is what is a girl in the life of Hannah Walker. But first of all, we can get your UK accent. If I'm correct, it's near Manchester, at least if I if I correct the accent.
1: It is. It is. I'm from South Manchester, so around 20 kilometers away from the center of of the city, in a village out in the countryside great for cycling I guess probably why it was so easy when I did start cycling that the terrain that we had you either had flat roads you had hilly roads but as you know Christoph, from being in the UK for for many years too the the climbs that we have are not long alpine type climbs where it's nice and steady at places It short steep very arduous
0: yeah and and the, the quality of the surface yeah the quality of the road as well sometimes it's a bit sketchy and stuff it's a it what makes char we call it charming it's charming <laughs> absolutely or i guess character building yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely so what got you into cycling first first and foremost and uh how how we were all passionate about the sport to our degree Uh, But you, people that know you, uh, we can see your eyes are lighting up when you talk about cycling.
1: Well, it started when I was 15 or 16. I went to the Manchester Velodrome for the first time. But prior to that, I'd been to when we had, do you remember the Revolution Series on the track?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah.
1: I can't remember when they started, but my, my granddad, well, my grandparents were both keen cyclists. And so when the Revolution Series came out, Me, my brother, my mum and dad, we used to go and watch with them and watch The Revolution. We had no idea about cycling at all. It was just something really fun to do on a Saturday evening. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, I think, four, maybe five events during the winter period. And so that, I have to say, wasn't something that I thought... I, I, I didn't begin to watch cycling after being there. I just really enjoyed it as a kid to go and watch and... It didn't make me want to say, I want to take up this sport, per se. It was just something that we did because I was doing running and athletics during this time. So, yeah, you know, that was my goal. I wanted to to be you know, a long distance runner, a cross country runner. Mm. And when I, I had an injury when I was 14 and I used to do, in the summer, I used to do track, outdoor track. Um, and then in the winter, I'd do indoor athletics and cross country. And I remember being at this meet, and it was indoor athletics, and I came off, I finished the race, and something went in my knee, and didn't know what it was, and I just remember being in a lot of pain, and as the course of the week went on, I had a, you know, the swelling was there on my knee, it didn't ease at all. Anyway, after lots of tests with physios and hospital and checks and scans, um, it turned out I had... Juvenile arthritis in my okay. left, so took time to let it rest, see if it went naturally, or what. What was the next thing? Because every time I tried to do some sort of impact sport,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it would, it would flare up again. And it must have been two thousand and seven, I think. I don't know how. I should actually ask her, really, because it, you know, it kind of maybe piece the puzzle together. <laughs> but my mum had seen that you could do taster sessions at the velodrome so this is where I bring you back full circle now you could go on a Monday evening and have a taster session and there was children of of the same age or teenagers let's say and I really enjoyed it but then Manchester velodrome was being relayed so they'd close the velodrome and I remember going to Australia to visit some family in Sydney And then when I came back, the velodrome was closed. And so that was it. I was kind of like, oh, I've done this. I've really enjoyed it. But now what? Um, So we had to wait for the velodrome to reopen. I think it reopened in 2008 or maybe the sort of that winter crossover between 2007 into 2008. And then, yeah, I would go on a Monday uh, riding with the club at Sport City Velo. Then you progress to a Saturday morning, which is a three-hour track session. And then you'd progress to a Wednesday evening. So you were doing Wednesday evening, Saturday morning. Then you start track league on a Monday. Then you did Friday track league. So four nights a week or four days a week, I was at the track. And I just built a huge love for it. And it wasn't long after that Manchester hosted the World Championships. Yeah. And of course, it was so successful with Vicky Pendleton winning. And she won the team sprint with Sinead Reed. Chris Hoy was winning. Bradley... Uh, Wiggins and had uh, won the Madison with calves. I'm trying to think back now, and then I remembered having a camera, and I just remember snapping all of these riders when they they were racing, and I just had a huge love for it. And I think we only had tickets for the first day, and I was a, I was a flag bearer. All of the Sports City Club riders were a flag bearer for each nation. And so we got ticket included in that for us and our family for the first day. And then we saw someone had some tickets for the next day. So I was like, oh, let's get tickets. Got tickets yeah. for the next day. Got tickets for the day after that. Yeah. Then it was the weekend, which is obviously always... The busy one. The, the busy one. period, Saturday, Sunday. And you know what they're like. They're like gold dust. Ended up getting some tickets. So I ended up going every day and I was just hooked on it. And we, we had... Sky TV at home, so then you're right into the season. So then you start watching all the races. I, I just formed a huge love for the sport and a huge passion for it. And then, of course, you mm-hmm. start racing more and more. And
0: it's it's interesting what you say because it, it proves that the infrastructure needs to be there. But when you are close to something like, I mean, the Chester Velodrome is a world class velodrome, but uh, it doesn't have to be a world class velodrome. But you need to have access to an infrastructure. And it's true, road cycling, we keep thinking, oh, you can go on the road, but parents are more and more scared to get their kids on the yep. road. But when you have a safe infrastructure like a velodrome, then you can. I mean, we can see the smile on your face when you go back to these days in your mind. Uh, it, it's pure pleasure.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it's like what I said, I've, I'd been watching cycling even when I was 8, 9, 10 years old. But just because I'd gone to the races, it didn't necessarily make me think, I want to do that because I was already hooked on something else and you look at these these races at the time at what was the revolution series and to you and especially to 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 me as a child you think well there's no way I could do that and I remember my grandma saying would you like to do that and I said oh yeah I can bring my mountain bike and she was like no actually a different bike to what you ride out on the you know playground whatever in the garden it's a special bike and you like Um, and I remember, for example, when I used to go and stay at my grandma and granddad's house, they only lived a couple of miles away and every Sunday morning he'd be out on a club ride. And this is when, again, when we were kids and we'd be like, look at that bike, look how strange the handlebars are, (laughs) drop handlebars. And it, you know, it seems, it's totally strange to you if you're not into it and then you start racing and then it's, yeah.
0: I think what's interesting with your case as well, is it's how you are a true example of how British cycling developed in those years. Uh, I'm not saying it was rubbish before, but it was not as good as it went through all this period of sky and dominating on the track. And this is those years. We're talking those those, those decades. This is where British cycling, in the lead-up to the London Olympics, completely blew the place apart.
1: Absolutely. And when you, I guess when you take a look back, and of course, even though I was only getting into the sport in 2008, eight let's say the beginning of so I was um 15 at the time yeah turning 16 in the in the summer it was the beginning of this constant winning approach and so for me I've grown up knowing that British athletes have dominated on the track and then on the road and then having a world tour team in team sky and having tour de France success I think well we are certainly very very fortunate to have seen it all But I think you almost take it like, well, where's the next talent coming? Where's the next big winner coming? And I remember saying to, you know, talking to my granddad about it, and he's been following the sport for ever since he was a young child. So he's gone through, what, 70 years of following the sport and never seen someone win the Tour de France and to see all this success. And it's it's sad because he, he passed away a few months just before so Brad won the tour, and he never got to see it. And
0: it's... Uh, it, sting, it stings you, Hannah. I'll I, I tell you, i give you a personal story. Uh, my, it's a completely different sport. It's football. But my granddad learned that France was going to host the World Cup in '98. Huge, 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 huge fan of football, of France. He, he was Italian, but a huge fan of the French team. Likewise, all his life, never won anything and he passed away only a few years before the World Cup that they won so he's never seen it and and like and in my lifetime I've seen them win twice the World Cup so it's some like for my family it's like for my daughters it's a normality France yeah. wins World Cup but for him all his life he never so I, I completely 100% relate to your story
1: it's yeah gives you got,
0: goosebumps
1: I just I, just, I, have, I have goosebumps <laughs> I have goosebumps I do because Yeah, for for us now, whether that's football or cycling, in our respective nations, we've only ever known them to be successful and being being a dominant team or a nation. And so I think when you see all those who have come before this generation of, or all the success from 2008 until now, where you see all of the professionals, whether that be on the road or track, who have come before those and what they had to endure, had to go through the conditions of course very, very different. But of course that lifestyle too of yeah. racing in the summer months or, you know, sort of spring into end of season and then going working on a farm from October until February, for example. And so it's very different to Well, it's just very different, isn't yeah. it?
0: Yeah, yeah. So so what got you into the next side of your life, the the behind the microphone and and being being like i said one of the voices of of it but you know why what, what got you into that journalism and that side of the job
1: it was 2016 and i remember being out on my bike out out training and i had a phone call and it had an unrecognized number and so you know, sometimes, I know some people are like, if I have an unrecognized number, that's it. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I'm
0: curious. I'm like, okay, who's this going to be? Well, in 2016, you probably still had the Nokia 3210, so you are like, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was okay at the time. <laughs> it was still okay. Yeah,
1: exactly. So I the phone and it was um, someone calling on behalf of Carlton Kirby, who, as we know, also another huge voice in in cycling and he comes on the phone and he said, "Yeah, hey, I was wondering if you would like to do the World Championships in Doha, which was you know coming up in the next couple of weeks, really, and to do the the men's and women's team time trial commentary alongside him, and then the women's road race and the women's individual time trial commentary with him." And it obviously came you know quite out out of the blue, but you know it also. An opportunity that i was i was wanting to take with both hands and and to really relish that opportunity and it's funny actually because you know when you get a a memory pop up on instagram and it gives you a little notification or whatever and it was it was i'm trying to to do my maths now 2016 to now what is it seven years yeah seven years and it came up the other day seven years since we you know he guided me through you know my first commentaries and it kind of went from there really from sort of especially 2018 into 2019 i was doing a lot of the national series a british national series in road racing and criterion racing um during that period and also was into esports into road racing did some of the classics for the the women's world tour races too and then i think it was 2020 where No, 2021, where things were a little bit, getting a little bit back to normal in terms of racing and where races were in the calendar. And I did a few days in in the studio with Eurosport GCN for the Giro d'Italia, and then again a few days um, at the the Tour de France. But it was 2020 when I did my first Grand Tour and I did the Vuelta with Anthony McCrossin, and we Mm -hmm. were on site. And there wasn't anybody else there, really, bar a couple of journalists. Because of the, the climate we were in and also the, the Vuelta was held from sort of the end of October, middle
0: of October until... The... Yeah, we, we have to remind you, it was the COVID, yeah. like it was really the COVID the COVID period. It's...
1: Deep, deep into it. And, you know, we were, there was curfews and we had to make sure that we got through one province or municipality to the other without getting out of the car. We had to make sure, we were, you know, the car was fueled, yeah, yeah. stop and... But it was, it and, was and a,
0: Spain was really badly hit as well. Let's remember that Spain was really badly hit with COVID as well. Just to put a context around it.
1: Absolutely, it was. It was, and it was strict rules. And like you say, Christoph, they were they were hard hit, and it was it was an incredible experience because we had a a terrific race too. Because everyone had spent, I say, everyone these professional riders had spent how many months maybe not allowed to, to leave their homes or not allowed to leave their region or not allowed to do more than sort of five kilometres or ten kilometres away from where they, they live because of restrictions of wherever the, their nation was. And I feel like once we got to the end of... and when racing began properly with... You could say Strada Bianca, which was, what, the first week of August of 2020. And then from there on in, every race... It felt like it was being raced as a one-day race because they didn't quite know would the race, and especially in a Grand Tour, and if the cases got really bad, and if the government, for example, said you know this sporting event can't go on, it felt like every day was just unbelievable the way they raced the race, and it was it was a very yeah it was a very very special opportunity for for me to to commentate the Vuelta with Anthony, and and to to be there and yeah we've we've done it for the last few years so.
0: So the Vuelta's got something special in uh in uh, in your mind, in your in your heart.
1: Yeah, I guess it has. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I guess it has because you know, it was the first grand tour that I had had worked on that I commentated on. And you know, it was it was special to I'd have the opportunity.
0: You mentioned the post COVID and everything. And we, we, we keep debating on this podcast with Deb McKenzie how cycling has already changed. Cycling is still changing. But like when we see what's coming up in 2024, we're already licking our lips, you know, with with what's what's ahead of us. Like when you look at the teams and who's moving where and and so on. And but do you feel from your experience that we are at a switch of an era? And you can feel that there's there's really new breeds of riders, new ways of racing New races, you know, the whole gravel scene getting a bit bigger, um, new winners with Sepp Kurs, which you commented on as well. Uh, what's your What's your view on 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 the now and the future?
1: It's hard to say, really, because I think we always, and it's always very much spoken about now that we've got young winners, young riders winning at a very early age. But I think it wasn't that long ago that Egan Bernal was also really young when he won the yeah. tour. And I think he almost gets forgotten about to be in that young winner's yeah. degree. Um, but I think probably what we're seeing is younger riders, again, showing that they can win, that they have all of the attributes to win. And I think it's that racist mentality. But I also think what we're seeing is a, is a shift in the mindset of managers and sports directors, more than anything, because probably... For many years, young riders were seen as you need to learn your trade. You need to be the helper, the domestique to our main leader within this team who is now, I don't know, 32, 33, 35 years old. And he's going to be the leader for a Grand Tour, let's say. Whereas I think now we're seeing this shift where they're not having to do their apprenticeship, let's say. Uh They come in and they're able to win straight into being in a first year in a world tour team and we've seen that with for example well, olaf Koy. yeah he's within realistically he's within a grand tour team setup but the way that he's still able as a as a sprinter to find his way within that team but also that the team still has opportunities for him to win and so i think that the the big change i think is probably the fact that riders aren't having to do 10 years as a pro before they can then be re- be assigned well actually you can be a Grand Tour rider and you've done your you've done your learning and now it's
0: look at the case of Theo Gaggenert. Uh like winning his Giro uh, super young as well but the way he's won it he had one opportunity and he took it Uh and, and that battle with Jahidli was for us memorable not in a good way because so we wanted the other way <laughs> I'm sure but, uh, uh, but, but in a way it was a fantastic Giro and but and uh, he, he has to rebound. And I'm sure we would hear a lot more from Teo Gaganal with his new outfit and so on. But he, I think he's a, he's, a, he's a typical example of a young rider being given an opportunity and actually not being shy of taking it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you think back to that Giro, they lost G very early. And of course, there was whole teams. I think it was, was it Jay Alula or what they were then known as? the whole team had to pull out because there was one mm-hmm. covid case and so when you take a look took look through and you saw yeah Filippo Ganna for example winning road stages of that particular Giro d'Italia and then of course the way in which Taylor had, had won it was you're quite right Christoph in saying that it was a, an opportunity that present was presented to him and he, he took it with, with both hands and it was still so close all the way until that final time trial. So, you know, for for him this year, I was at the, the Giro d'Italia this year too with, with Eurosport as a reporter and he was looking in such good form. It was heartbreaking to see him crash out like that and as a consequence, hasn't raced. You know, unbeknownst to him, that was his last race for the Ineos Grenadiers before yeah, yeah, yeah. moving to Little Trek next year. But it's
0: it's probably the best move he needed, though. He probably needed to get out of the outfit of the Ineos, and because he's been with Ineos and Sky since. Uh, I mean, I think he was there at the the launch of Sky as a as a ten year old boy in that room. Yeah, no, <laughs> so yeah, he, exactly. he had to change a bit of atmosphere. But I've got great hopes for for Theo actually. Cause I I really like the guy, and uh and I really like the attitude. So I hope he does it does very very well. What 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 makes you love cycling these days? you know it is because it's not all about winning there's so much more about cycling
1: it is it is and i think in terms of the racing side of things i think it's everything combined it's the characters that are within this sport both in the the male and female pro peloton i think it's also how different the races are too because i think a lot of a lot of the time people want to compare the two and they're totally different and rightly so and so I think it's always the unpredictability of it and the close rivalries. But I think it's also the deeper stories from what we see that emerge from cycling. And why did someone start cycling in the first place? Was it, for for some riders, was it through something to, to get away from something? And that was their their safe haven, let's say.
0: Because it it is quite a lonely sport sometimes. It's quite interesting. Uh, M- Maka and I had this whole debate and we both came to the conclusion that It's a sport of misfits because it's 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 it is like it it's not a cool sport when you start when you when you're when you're twelve thirteen fourteen depending which country you are you know football or soccer like we call it here it's much cooler you know Australian league is much there's so many other cool sports you can do as a as a teenager so therefore the the kids that are getting into this thing they're not necessarily the cool kids you know Uh, and it's okay it's okay to see this. (laughs)
1: because <laughs> we're a huge group of us all together
0: so we all misfit. so we all sort of somehow get along together you
1: know? <laughs> it's quite right I remember riding to school it was when I just started and I was like this is this is cool I've got this this old road bike it was an aluminium frame so it was you know before I had a carbon bike and I was like I'm gonna ride to school because that's six miles there six miles back you know just every little Pedal revolution could could count kind of thing. And it was also a way in thinking, well, you, know, you don't have to take the bus to school. And I remember going to school and everyone was like, what is that like? <laughs> what are you doing? And it was just so uncool. And ne- I never did it again. Everybody was, you know, you go and you kind of keep yourself to yourself, just lock your bike up. And and I just thought, I'm not doing this again. It was because it was so uncool. And it was, this was before... You know, GB had won all the medals in Beijing at the Olympics. So before everyone was like, "Oh, that's we're pretty good at this."
0: It's uh it's funny. I've got a similar story with rollerblades. But I, I didn't know how to ride rollerblades, and I ended up wanting to go to school with rollerblades. And like, he was the worst nightmare <laughs> and the most uncool thing ever. <laughs> Things you do when you're kid.
1: On, on wheels, but of a different yeah, kind. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. Uh, what is a year like for you? Because you travel a bit. You said you, you've done the Giro, you've done the Vuelta, uh, Tour de France Farm as well. Uh, what's your, and well, we talk about the Tour de France Femme straight after this, but what's your year like? Does it involve a lot of mileage, a lot of driving, a lot of flying, trains, you know, all of the above?
1: I think it's all of, all of the above, tick, tick all of them, <laughs> between driving, getting the train, flying. It's generally starts off when i'm away let's say is paris generally the the first race of the season then i'll do the those spring classics and then into the ardennes classics so Amstel, flesh liege straight wall what are you into then end of end of april and then
0: and giro um, is knocking at the door uh,
1: giro yeah giro's knocking on the door so that's something that i have loved to do and be on site as a reporter with with Eurosport for the Giro for the last two years, and the Giro is also a special race. I have to say, it's it's got a real, real in terms of the the park or the country, the riders that that race that that particular Grand Tour, and of course it it kickstarts the first of the three. And yeah, from from the Giro, generally some commentary uh, from from the studio for for Eurosport during like the June period. Uh, national championships and then it's you straight into like Tour de France Tour de France Femme and then this year was world championships in Glasgow so up in Glasgow for 2 weeks and then into the Vuelta which was a very different Vuelta this year because generally I had Anthony McCrossan as commentator alongside me and and unfortunately he was um, ill he was sick after the first stage and ended up having to go home so that was a very different very different Vuelta for me and then taking on the role of a lead commentator in a grand tour and then having different guests and you you were one of one of my guests for, it was fun
0: it was fun so for me he was fun for me great it was <laughs> I, I loved it it was good but uh, how how did you take on that role like I, how did you take on this whole thing the whole Vuelta being the lead comms and stuff it's it's again, it's not so much an opportunity because you're, you're feeling in for Anthony, but there's a bit of sweet as well, not knowing if Anthony was going to be okay. He's okay now. So that's uh, that's Absolutely. fine. Yeah, we should, we, we should say <laughs> that. He's, like, he's, he's very fine. And, and we love Anthony. But uh, for you, it was like, I mean, show must go on. This is the thing. The race doesn't stop. It doesn't stop for anything.
1: It doesn't. It doesn't. And so for me, it was, I think, because we had no other op- uh, choice and there was no other solution. It was the Sunday stage, so stage two, and it was like, well, you're going to have to do the commentary. And you don't have two minutes to um and ah and think about it. You just have to go and do it. And I did the stage on my own, and then I had different guests along the way for the next, well, practically three weeks. And I took on sort of the anchor, let's say, as as a lead commentator, and then the guests that I had coming in, and, and yourself likewise, would then come in and and join me and provide insights and so I don't know I think I just you can't think about it too much and you didn't have time to think about it it was just you had to do it and it was you know I'd done already some lead commentary well I already had done lead commentary anyway so I didn't feel of course you you feel a little nervous and I think that if you didn't you would I think it's good to feel nervous yeah so you know it 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 definitely was. Yes,
0: uh, <laughs> never, ne- not to do it again straight away. That's the thing you want you want him yeah. back.
1: I think, yeah, absolutely, and you know we always have such a a great race together, and so definitely, definitely want him back alongside for for next year. But I think is well for me, Christophe is. Whilst it was a big challenge. I've also worked with so many different lead commentators over the years. So the first time I worked with someone as a as a co-commentator, Colton Kirby was a lead commentator. Worked with Rob Hatch, Anthony McCrossan, Matt Keenan, Matt Stevens, Jose Bean. So you've worked, and I've worked with all these different lead commentators who've been doing it for so many years that you also learn a lot from them. Simon Brotherton too, who he, he does a lot with the BBC but he does a lot of football commentary but and, and cycling too but you learn so many different ways of working with different league commentators they've all got their own style they've all got their own way of working and so I think yeah for all of the, the people I've mentioned yeah I've, I've learned a lot from from what they've had to offer Marty McCrossan too mm-hmm. and Marty McDonald we, we know him as <laughs> um, uh,
0: so quick question are you the one that inspired the uh, hairdryer of the of the tour from Matt Stevens or no? <laughs>
1: do you know what every time I see his yeah, hair of the Giro just has me in stitches it really does and he's Matt Stevens is such a character he's got such a wonderful personality <laughs> but I think I mean for anyone who's, who's listening to to this podcast you know check him out on his Instagram he's just it's just a... do
0: you know he was teammate with uh, Dave McKenzie they both rode really? in, yeah, in the Lisa, McC- uh, the Linda McCartney team. And the majority. yeah, together. Wow. So and and that's how I know Steve because Micah introduced me to him, and he said, "Do you want to see a misfit? Here's a misfit." <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're all in it together. Yeah,
0: this is the thing. Uh, last question for you: the 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 rebirth of the Tour de France, farm the explosion on the scene of of the woman cycling, uh, which you know there've been several attempts over the years, but. Now it really feels it's for good, and it can only get better and better and better as a female commentator, what's your vision on this? How do you see the future i mean it can only be bright, but I just wanted to hear it from you basically
1: yeah it was it's it was special I mean being there for the first edition last year and then being the being the commentator on site and again this year it's had a really special feeling about it. And it's kind of weird to say it. it felt like it had a real aura around the race because there was so much talk and discussion and ahead of the race going ahead and you saw so many brands wanting to be a part of it and there was so much... I think there was probably quite a change within the teams too in terms of the preparation beforehand. Probably very different, if not new, to what they've ever done before ahead of one particular race. And I know some riders came into it with an approach of this is a race just like all the other races but to try and keep themselves on on a level to not get too I guess overwhelmed by the the overwhelmed by the race whereas others of course it was a career-changing opportunity to be racing in the tour especially maybe those who were Thinking of retirement imminently and so for them to have ridden the Tour de France farm of X-Swift before they retired, it was it, it felt really special. But I think when you take a look at where it can go in in the future now, Christophe, and how it can gain momentum and now we're starting to see, I mean, the, it's, and it might be an unpopular opinion, I think where the race is at now and how it was raced and you saw it, Christophe, this year of of how aggressive each and every stage was and how hard it was. And having spoken to riders on the morning of the final stage, and they were just saying, this is the hardest race I've ever done in my life. I've done the best numbers, the best power numbers, best performance. I'm in the form of my life. And I'm still not on the... I'm still on the receiving end of of the difficulty of, of how hard the race is. And so I think at the moment, where we've got this eight-day race, and this is why I say maybe a bit of an unpopular opinion to to some... I think where we've got this 8-day race at the moment I think it has to continue at 8 days for maybe a couple more years and to let the sport grow too and to not let it grow too big too soon and then you know perhaps we lose mm-hmm. the the excitement and the unpredictability of of how the race unfolds because if we saw the the longer stage of this year's race everyone thought well this is is it too long? But in the end, it was one of the best stages. We're thinking we very, very rarely we see a breakaway go to over 10 minutes, 11 minutes in the women's pro peloton anyway. And for it actually to come back, all bait one rider who was from the original breakaway who went on to take the stage victory, but then you have the general classification contenders right back in the mix. I think for me now, you, you, there's definitely a vision for the race for it to progress, for it to to continue to grow, but also to have that big, big position also within in the calendar.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right here. It's a, it, it's, you, it feels that it's about to write a story of its own. It's not, you know, like the, the Tour de France is now, there's two Tour de France's. I don't even know how it works in grammatically, uh, but, but it's writing its own share of the history. Uh, and, and I think... I don't know if I could phrase it well, but what I've loved this year at the Tour de France is most people stop to be amazed, going, "Oh, they're women racing!" No, they were—they are racers, you know. Yeah. And completely. and I think they st- they stop being amazed in the best way possible, you know. They they stop being, "Oh, good on them!" No, it's actually proper racing, and it was just fantastic racing all the way through.
1: I totally agree. Totally agree. And I think when you see the Tourmalay stage, and yeah. there hasn't been that many races or Tour de France stages that have finished on the Tourmalet I and mean, actually when you take a look down the history because it's this this mythical climb it's this climb that everybody knows about actually there hasn't been that many races that have finished and, and riders who have won atop of the Tourmalet and so I also think that's special that already in year two we we're visiting these big big climbs that
0: are so in famous the weather and- Do- and the weather. weather played a complete part of it. Like it was daunting. It was like, you know, the, the riders were completely livid. They were completely empty. But the weather was absolutely rubbish. But in, in a good way, like, let's face it, we couldn't see five meters away from it. No. Uh, well, but that just minutes, added so much to it.
1: Ten minutes earlier to that, it was blue sky, yeah. really
0: warm. <laughs>
1: and then you could watch the clouds roll in. And I think, And I think also where it was positioned, you know the stage. It was a, yeah. an evening stage, a late evening stage. It it was it was perfect in terms of the way it all holds
0: it. Absolutely, it's been lovely talking to you, Hannah, and uh, hopefully to uh, to many other encounters. We'll meet you again uh, all across maybe the, the the tour and the vuelta and the Tour de France farm and everything. But it's always a, a pleasure to have you on SBS. A uh, pleasure to have your smile and uh, and your lovely accent as well. And 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 it comes from the, from the heart because I've got an accent as well, so I can say this. You know.
1: That's okay. Accents are good. That's all right. Thanks very much for having me, Christoph. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.